How do you feel about other Christians? It's that awkward question, isn't it? Most common answer I've heard over the years, something along these lines, well, the Bible says you need to love them, but it doesn't say you need to like them. And we both laugh, ha ha ha, it's a joke. But there's an awkward reality to it, isn't there? How do you feel about the folk at your church? I'm aware that there are people joining us from other churches uh, as we live stream. How do you feel about the ones at your church? Well, how would you feel if I said that in one sense, it were like that you are married to the people at your church? That in God's eyes, you are bound together, glued together. That you are responsible for one another, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. That actually many of the things we're called to do in marriage, we're called to do to one another in church. Now, of course, there are certain activities and things that are confined to actual marriage. We don't need to go there this morning. and um, There are children watching. But many of the things that we're called to do in a marriage with a marriage partner, we're actually called to do with one another in church. So our three points this morning really are based around three things. Love, honour and obey. The honour one is for God rather than for each other, but we'll come to that when we get there. But there's that sense in which that's what we're to do with each other. And if that's right, that we're bound together in that way, then surely that should change our view of church, of each other. We're called to something much deeper, aren't we, than a brief hello and a chat about the weather. I mean, if that's all that you talked about in marriage, would you call that a healthy marriage? So church is not a club of like-minded enthusiasts. It's not an institution, as Groucho Marx famously said, who wants to be part of an institution. It's not a legal entity. There can be a legal side to things, like marriage. But if your marriage is all about the signing of the registers, then there's a problem. So what is it then? What is the church? Well, it's a family, bound together by the Holy Spirit, bound together in the bonds of love. And that's our first point this morning. Love one another brotherly. That's verse 10, the first part. Let me read that to you again. Love one another with brotherly affection. Now this might seem like quite a shift from me talking about marriage to talking about brotherly affection or brotherly love. But this passage abounds in different pictures and different words for the love that we're to have for one another. This is all, if you remember, unpacking that phrase from last week, genuine love, unhypocritical love. The word there was the word agape, which is normally the, the, the word that's used for the kind of love that God has for us, for his people. But there are two other words for love in just this brief half a sentence here in verse 10. There's brotherly affection, literally brotherly love, Philadelphia in Greek. Not to be confused with the city or with the cheese. It's brotherly love. But also that phrase, love one another, at the beginning, is quite a specific word. It's a different word from the other ones that are used. In the NIV, it's translated as be devoted to one another. In the Holman Christian Standard Bible, it's show family affection to one another. 
That's probably the closest. It's the word used for the love that a parent has for a child. Be attached to them as a parent would be to their son or daughter. That's why it can be translated, be devoted to. It's that kind of idea. So he's mixing his metaphors, his pictures. It's quite hard to get your head round. So it's sort of, is it parents? Is it brothers? But the picture he's painting is of a family. A family. And scripture abounds with those pictures for the church, doesn't it? Romans does. In verse 1 of chapter 12, he calls us brothers. And he uses that word 19 times in Romans. It can nearly always be translated brothers and sisters, as the Greek word can include women too. That's not being PC, it's just being good at, you know, knowing your grammar. That's, that's what it means. In chapter 15, he mentions a woman who he says has been like a mother to him. Several times in the scriptures, Paul refers to fellow Christians as his children. None more so than Timothy, who he calls again and again his son in the faith. And to Timothy, he writes this in 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2. He says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. It's a picture there of a family again. He's saying treat one another in church like you would your mothers or brothers, your sisters. I remember when I first started going to Sunday school uh, as a child, um, we had to call all the leaders aunts and uncles. So it was Auntie Steph and Uncle Paul who were my first Sunday school teachers. It's a bit quaint, and I don't think we should go back to that. There are all sorts of child protection implications and all sorts of things these days. But the attitude should be there. The attitude we need to get back, don't we? We're a family. A family that sticks together through thick and thin. That is how we're to treat one another in church, as family. Is that how you'd characterise your love for others in church? Are they like your brothers and sisters? Are they like your fathers and mothers, aunties and uncles? If your sister rang you up and needed help, wouldn't you go? If your mother was ill, wouldn't you go and see her under normal circumstances? But equally, wouldn't it be weird if that was the only time that you went to see them? Wouldn't it be weird that the only time you talked to one another uh, on the phone was when something was wrong? See, I think as a church, we're not bad at the sort of triage stuff, you know, uh, when things are going wrong, actually. We, we, we were quite good at helping each other. We could be better, of course. But what about just the normal run of life? Are we like a family then, when nothing's wrong? Do we love one another when there's not a crisis? Do we meet up with one another when we're not struggling? Do we pray for one another when there isn't something specifically going wrong? See, love in a family isn't just in the hard times. We're actually allowed to enjoy each other's company. Now, for some, family is hard. And for some of us, church is hard too. But maybe if we loved one another like brothers and sisters are supposed to do, if we were mothers and brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles to each other in the best way, might it make it a little less hard? 
We're to love one another brotherly, like a family. So love. Our second point this morning is honour. Honour one another competitively. Have a look at verse 10, the second part. Outdo one another in showing honour. I think this part is the most embarrassing part, probably, of this section for us Brits. Show honour. That sounds uncomfortable. Uh, I searched for uh, hymns or songs that had this idea in them. But, you know, I couldn't find one. Don't Google it now. Google it later. But the idea of honouring one another, there's lots about loving one another. But honouring one another just seems a step too far. There are lots of hymns about honouring God, but none that I could see about honouring other Christians. But that's what we're called here to do. I think part of the problem is what we think of, of that word honour. When I read this, I imagined those long and gushing introductions that are given to pastors in other parts of the world that will remain nameless. They always remind me a little bit of those boxing announcers, do you know what I mean? And now we have the foremost Bible teacher in the whole of the southwest county area, the expert of exegesis, the uh, prodigy among preachers, the ace of application, the champion of orthodoxy, the true defender of the faith, one whose ministry has been life-changing to millions. Ladies and gentlemen, prepare yourselves to be blown away by the phenomenon that is Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, or something, something along those lines. Do you know what I mean? It's just bizarre. You'll be pleased to know that that is not what is called for here. And if anybody tries to introduce me in that way on a Sunday morning, you might find out my boxing skills. I don't have any boxing skills, so that's probably okay. But that's not what's called for. What it's calling for, though, is way more than just flattering words said over a loudspeaker. The word honour is really another word, another form of the word value. So let me show you some of the ways that this word can be translated. It can mean to prize, to assign value to, to count as dear, costly, valued or treasured. We are to prize one another. We are to value one another. And we're to show that in the way that we treat one another. When was the last time you showed someone in church that they were valued by you? When was the last time you let someone know how dear they are to you? Of course, we can only show it if we genuinely feel it. Otherwise, it's the hypocritical love that Paul is warning us off in this passage. So we also need to ask ourselves the question, do we genuinely value others in church? And if we do, do they know that? Now, this is not a plea from me as a pastor for more encouragement. I'm talking about this as a one another thing. Actually, everybody's to be involved in it and everyone's to be on the giving and receiving end. Do we value each other in church? And it's not just about valuing what you can get from each other. Paul doesn't use this word honour very often. But one time he does, but he's when he's quoting, honour your father and mother, same word. Honour, you see, is a family thing too. Love them as you would a child, love them as you would a brother, honour them as you would a parent. How much more family can you get? And in a family, it's not about what they do, it's about who they are. 
Do you value them as a person for their own sake, not just what you can get out of them? Society is starting to go down the line that some, someone is only valuable if they're useful. Value is related to what you can get out of someone rather than who they are. But that's not the Bible's line. People have intrinsic value and dignity. It's not about what you can get out of people. That said, there can be specific honour, special honour for those with specific roles or service. Talking of a man who uh, called Epaphroditus, who had travelled hundreds of miles to deliver help to Paul, Paul writes this, So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honour such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. What Paul commends Epaphroditus for is not so much a specific gift, but his attitude of selfless service. In Romans language, here is an example of a living sacrifice, laying down his life in service for his brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's worthy of honour, says Paul. He also says elders who lead well should be worthy of double honour. So 1 Timothy 5, 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honour, especially those who labour in preaching and teaching. Again, the emphasis is not just on the gift, leading, that's the same word as we had in verse 8, but that they do it well. It's also a reminder that if they are worthy of double honour, then others are worthy worthy of single honour at least, yeah? So we're to show honour. And we're to outdo one another, it says, in showing honour. Now it does make it sound a bit like a competition, doesn't it? It's a tricky little phrase there. Best translation I reckon I've found, Christian Standard Bible, says take the lead in honouring one another. It's the idea of going first. Take the lead in honouring one another. Make it your responsibility, your job to show honour. Do it to the best of your abilities. Now that may end up like a competition as everyone tries to take the lead. But better that than everyone taking a back seat, which would be the opposite. No, not my responsibility to show honour. Not my job. Someone else can do that. Or even, why should I show honour? Nobody ever shows it to me. Take the lead, says Paul. Don't wait around for others to start doing it. Start doing it yourself now. Don't be a hypocrite saying that nobody is being valued if you're not showing honour to folk yourself. This is an everybody command. It's not just for leaders, this is for everyone in church. Though, of course, leaders must take heed of it too. Are we showing honour to one another? Are we taking the lead in showing honour? Are we making it normal in our church family? So we're to show honour to one another. And our last point is obey. Obey and serve God. Just have a look at verse 11 with me. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Now this one isn't specifically about how we treat one another. Though elsewhere in scripture we are called to submit to one another 
and to our leaders in church, but we're not going to look at that right now. What we're called to here is to obey and serve God. But as we've seen over the last few weeks, serving God is seen in practice in serving one another. In whatever context we serve, though, what is highlighted here is the manner, how we do it. Zeal, fervency. And here we move from the outside, showing love and honour, from the action to the attitude. It's talking about what's going on inside of us. Do we serve the Lord fervently? Now as I read that, I feel a sting of rebuke at my too cold heart. Where is my fervency? Where is my zeal? Like a marriage, it's very easy, isn't it, for the passion to go cold. But here we have the word zeal, meaning enthusiasm, haste. It's related to the word for speed. Yet so often we can feel slow and unenthusiastic. We have the word fervent, which literally means boiling hot. And yet so often aren't we lukewarm at best for the Lord. For many of us, I reckon, if there's any word that we sort of feel in our hearts here, it's probably that word slothful, lazy, lethargic. Exactly what we're called not to be. But if our love is to be unhypocritical, it must involve some passion, some enthusiasm. Now I think that looks different for all of us. We've all got different temperaments, different characters. But it probably looks more like enthusiasm than you think it does, if that makes any sense. We tend to excuse ourselves, don't we, and say, well, I'm just not like that. But may I delicately suggest that we might be wrong as we say that. That whatever it looks like for you and for me, we could probably have more zeal and further for the things of the Lord. A good test, I think, is to uh, think about our enthusiasm for other things. See, I get most worried about my spiritual state when I find myself more excited, more animated talking about something and nothing, like fantasy novels or music, than I do talking about the things of God. It shows that I've got enthusiasm for something there. For you it might be football, or cop shows, or food, or politics. Some people are temperamentally more unenthusiastic than others. But if you get enthused about other things, then isn't it a clue that that's not really the case for you? Could it be that we're just excusing ourselves? There must be some zeal there, some fervency of spirit, some chutzpah. That said, of course, we must be beware of just trying to stir up uh, enthusiasm out of nowhere. There is a wrong sort of enthusiasm, a wrong sort of zeal. Paul comments in chapter 10 that the Jews of his day had zeal, but not according to knowledge. In other words, they were zealous... But their zeal was misdirected because they've not acknowledged the righteousness that comes by faith, not by works that Paul's been talking about all the way through this letter. 
Paul says that he was zealous before his conversion, zealous in persecuting the church. You see, zeal without knowledge can be a problem. But I suspect in our circles, the bigger problem is knowledge without zeal. But if we're to build our enthusiasm, we must think about what sort of enthusiasm God wants us to build, what the direction of our enthusiasm is to be. See, it's too easy, even in church, to have enthusiasm about the wrong things. You know, I love this church. They have donuts after the meeting. I love this song that we sing at church. It's got this amazing guitar riff. Oh, I love the Bible. There are so many amazing facts in there. Now, being zealous about those things is not wrong. Though I might want to argue it, they're a bit bit misdirected. But it's not even being fervent in our singing it's talking about, which I think is a common misconception of these words. Again, not a bad thing. We want to be fervent in our singing, don't we? But what it's talking about here is that God wants us to be zealous in our service. In our serving. Literally there, as it talks about serve the Lord, in our slaving for him, is what it means. That's where our enthusiasm is to be directed, our service. Really, the the phrase there is another way of talking about verse 1 of chapter 12, laying down our lives as living sacrifices to God. That is our reasonable service, our true worship. And think about what this verse means for that then, as we serve. We're to do it eagerly. We're to do it enthusiastically. We're to do it with all our hearts. We're not to give up. We're to be passionate about it. Could you imagine this? Take my life, transform, renew and change me, that I might be a living sacrifice. How, how is that honouring to God? How is unenthusiastic service glorifying to God? How is half-hearted, apathetic serving anything but dishonouring to God? It's treating God like he was some middle manager, you know, that you just have to obey, but you're not going to enjoy it. It's hypocrisy in a sense, isn't it? Doing it but not feeling it. But I know that many of us feel that keenly at points. We feel like we should be more on fire inside. I think all of us feel that, don't we, at points. And for some, the answer to stop their hypocrisy is to stop trying to serve the Lord at all. But that's the wrong way to go. Instead, we need to take a look inside and do some work there and pray that God would do some work there. We need to take all three of his commands here seriously. He tells us not to be lacking in zeal. Do we treat that as seriously as we do commands like do not steal or do not kill? We need to take these commands about being fervent and zealous seriously. So how do we raise our enthusiasm for service? Well, can I make some suggestions in just one area, this area of serving one another? 
There are other areas, how we serve at work, how we serve in evangelism, how we serve God in various ways on Sundays and in practical matters of the running of the church. But this morning, I just want to focus on that area of everyday, personal, informal serving of brothers and sisters, of loving them, encouraging them, caring for them, honouring them, because that's what our passage as a whole is focusing on. So can I just give you three suggestions? If you feel that you're not lacking, if you're lacking in zeal in this area, first one, be creative. If serving one another is feeling like a slog, if you're growing weary of doing good, then why not mix it up a little? Could you try to serve others without them knowing it's you? Do you know a bit of a James Bond or the man from the milk tray adverts, if you're old enough to remember that? You know, dropping off notes or parcels without being seen, sending anonymous encouragements. If you're no good at words and cards, then could you bake a cake for someone who's finding it hard at the moment? Could you have a barbecue and have the goal in your head of having one good conversation with one person that you've invited there about something that they've been learning at church? Or if you're no good at cooking or baking, could you get fish and chips and have someone round? Could you do a flash mob Bible study in a group of six or less? You and a friend or a couple of friends arrange a rendezvous somewhere on a bench. Sometimes serving God will involve things that are boring and will be a slog. I have to do my tax return at some point as part of my service. I cannot think of a way to make that anything but boring. I find it hard to get enthusiastic about that. But most of the time, especially in the area of service to one another, it doesn't have to be boring and a slog. Putting a bit of thought into it can, can aid our enthusiasm. So that's point number one, be enthusiastic. That's the suggestion for helping us. Number two, be in it for the long term. Enthusiasm for serving one another takes time. The more we know and love someone, the more zealous we will be to help them. I'm more likely to genuinely care for someone that I've known a while, who I've served alongside, who I've shared a bit of my life with. So do that. Be in it for the long term. Don't just give up after a little while. Because actually, the more you know them, the easier it will be. And then thirdly, be enthusiastic about the service of others. Be enthusiastic about the service of others. If you want to have a, a culture where enthusiastic service is normal, where acts of love and service are valued, then we need to be enthusiastic about the service of others. It goes back to the idea of showing honour to people who serve. If our norm is that we never honour people, if our norm is that we never thank people even, then we shouldn't be surprised if our service goes unnoticed or unhonoured. And within that, are we people who are always picking holes in the service of others? Or do we look for things to commend them for? Feedback has a place. We want to excel in our service to the Lord, don't we? To do it the best that we can. And feedback can help. You know, you could improve in this way, etc. But in general, people need your enthusiasm more than your critique. If you want to encourage service 
in ourselves and in others, then we need to need more Len Goodmans than Craig Revel Hallwoods. We need more David Walliams than Simon Cowles. In fact, most of the time, we need to come off the judging panel altogether, don't we? More of that in chapter 14. It comes back to that question we asked at the beginning. How do we feel about other Christians? Do we love them? Do we want to serve and honour them? Do we want to love, honour and obey? Or actually, do we secretly judge them and look down on them? Is that what we mean when we say we don't have to like them? Because if that's what we're doing, then that's certainly not what the Bible calls us to. Do we treat them as bound to us, for better or for worse? It says in the Bible, doesn't it, that a man who loves his wife loves himself. Equally, a man or a woman who loves their church loves themselves. We're bound together. We need to love and serve others in humility. Or are we just out for what we can get, rather than what we can give? Do you know what I mean? We sit there and we think, I hope so-and-so is listening to this. I hope everyone else is marking this, so that I get the honour and thanks that I deserve. But if you think this is a message for everyone else, then it's probably a clue that you've not quite understood it. It's like the husband or wife who goes to marriage counselling so that the counsellor can sort the other person out. Actually, we all need to think about this, don't we? We're to love and honour each other in obedience to God, loving like brothers, honouring like crazy, and obeying our God with all our hearts. So let's pray that God would help all of us to take this message to heart. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would do that work in our hearts, Father, that only you can do. Father, as we seek to to show more zeal, to have more zeal in our hearts, Father, pray that by your Spirit you place it there. Father, as we seek to have more love for our brothers and sisters, again by your Holy Spirit, put that in our hearts as we seek to love and honour each other. Help us to obey you fervently, Father, with all our hearts, soul, mind and strength. Father, that we might honour you and that we might see your church grow and that we might see believers loved and honoured as you want them to be. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.